So we begin Prosper the City today. Over the next eight weeks, we're going to be looking at how God uses the city throughout the entire narrative of Scripture to teach us what it means and what our role is in the city. I don't know about you, but I love cities. I'm an extrovert. I'm a guy who feeds off of energy and large crowds of people. There's never a crowd too big for me. There's never a group of people that I don't want to be around. Well, I guess that's not entirely true if you're annoying or something like that. But for the most part, I enjoy being around people, okay, which is why I really love cities. I read about cities. I read books on cities. My wife thinks it's really strange, but I really am passionate about cities. So I want to quiz you, because my favorite thing to do when I go to a new place, whether I'm driving into the city or flying into the city, one of my favorite things is looking at a city's skyline, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to pop some different skylines on the screen here, and this is class participation time. I know it's not normal to scream out in the worship service, but if you know the skyline, I'm giving you permission to yell out what city you think I'm showing, okay? You will not get in trouble. There are no rewards for winning. It's just a group exercise. So don't come up to me after the service asking for your piece of candy or anything like that. We're just in this together. Here we go. First city we're going to pop up. Take a guess. Chicago, correct. All right, here we go. Actually, Nathan, I already forgot. Which one is that? Oh, it's L.A. Yes, thank you. Los Angeles. I guess I should have these memorized before I ask you. All right. Los Angeles. Here we go. Third one. This is tricky because it looks kind of like every other city, and it's a great place. I'm not making fun of it, but it's kind of hard to tell anything unique, so take a stab at it. Atlanta. Correct. This is an easy one. All right. As we get towards the end, I want to build your confidence so it's going to get easier. St. Louis. And did we skip one there? All right, good job. Very good. Thank you, class, for your participation. I flew into Seattle one time and got to see the mountains and then the football stadium, and then right next to it was the baseball stadium, and that was one of the coolest places that I've actually flown into. New Orleans is a cool place as well. But cities are really dominating on the world scale right now. In fact, there was a book recently written by a guy named Ed Glazer, and it was entitled Triumph of the City. And what he talks about in that book is that there seems to be some misinformation about cities. Because a lot of people traditionally think that people that live in urban settings are these busy, stressed out, unhappy individuals. But he actually did the research, and he found that in places where over 50% of the population is urban, that 25 say that they are happy living in the city, whereas only 17% say they're unhappy. But if you go into the rural setting, where over 50% of the population is rural, what you're going to find is that only 25% report being happy and 22% report being unhappy. So it's not always the case that urban settings are places where people are just super stressed, super burned out, and they just want to leave and go away. This research proves it. Now I want to read to you 
an excerpt from a journal article about the city, and this is what it says. The 21st century will not be dominated by America or China, Brazil or India, but by the city in an age that appears increasingly unmanageable. Cities rather than states are becoming the islands of governance on which the future order will be built. Do I have your attention on the importance of an urban setting which we happen to be a part of here in New Orleans? And God has words for us about what it means to live in a city. So we're going to start today in Genesis, and we're going to go through seven other passages in this series, God addressing our role in the city. So today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 18 to start, looking at what I've called the challenge of the city. Beginning in verse 20 of chapter 18, Moses tells us, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there, and they went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near, and he said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked, far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And again he spoke to him and he said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now keep reading into verse, excuse me, chapter 19, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom. In the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. And he said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. This is where we learn to wash our feet in the Bible. Wash your feet every time you take a bath. It's a joke. 
Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after them and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord." And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-laws, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. And as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, O no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. A tragic story that we find. In fact, Sodom and Gomorrah is almost universally feared by both Christians and non-believers alike. So what do we do when we get to a story like this in the book of Genesis where God seems to be condemning a city. Well, I think there's four observations that I want to share with you this morning that God is showing us in this passage. And if we'll heed these observations, I think God can use us in the cities where we live. The first thing you'll notice here is that sin exists in cities. 
Not just New Orleans, not just Atlanta, Chicago, Los Angeles. It's simple math. Where more people live, there's greater opportunities for people to sin. The text tells us that God heard the outcry coming from Sodom. Of course God knows everything, but people were crying to him about what they saw happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. Perhaps the most tragic part of this story is when the angels go into Lot's house to stay with him, and the men come and ask for the men to come out. Lot was about to sacrifice his own daughters in order to protect his guests. We look at texts like this in the Bible and we scratch our heads. Why would God want to include such graphic, evil details in his word? Well, it's a good reminder to all of us that when you read stories in the Old or the New Testament, sometimes they're simply describing to you what happened. They're not prescribing that we engage in that behavior. They're just letting us know what happened in the actual story. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah was so great that God was made aware of it by his people. There's essentially three ways that we can respond to sin, okay? The first thing we can do is we can withdraw and flee from it and stand over here and say, we're not like those people. This is what Jesus talks to the Pharisees about all throughout the New Testament. Standing in judgment of other people even when they had sin in their own heart. So that's one way we can respond. Another way is to immerse ourselves in the sin around us. We wouldn't recommend that either, would we? Or we can acknowledge that sin exists, not only in cities, in rural areas, everywhere we look. Acknowledge the sin, humble ourselves, and provide a solution to it. Now, while we know the third answer is the best, if we were to be honest this morning, all of us in here have acted in every one of those ways I just described. We have cast judgment upon those who were engaged. We ourselves have engaged in sin. But the best way is to acknowledge the sin in your own life and in the culture around you and provide a solution to it. There's a theologian many years ago, Niebuhr, who wrote a book entitled Christ and Culture. And he lays out in that book five ways that Christians traditionally have responded to the culture and the place in which they live. One of the ways you can respond is Christ against culture. So in other words, believers in Christ standing over here saying, we want nothing to do with the place where we live. We're just going to stand over here and do our own thing. That's a way historically that some Christians have responded. Christ against culture. Christ of the culture, recognizing that Jesus is in the culture, okay, and looking for ways to affirm that culture. Then there's Christ above culture. It recognizes that God is at work 
and that we need to bring the culture up to where God is. Number four is Christ and culture in paradox. What that is saying is there's two worlds, a secular world and a sacred world. And the easiest thing to do is to just keep them separate. You have your sacred world where you gather on Sundays with your church, and then the rest of the week is your secular world. And you don't ever try to intermingle the two. And then what he points out, the most effective way to deal with culture, is Christ transforming the culture. Now what does that mean? What that means is, wherever God has placed you, chef, musician, artist, lawyer, teacher, law enforcement. He doesn't want you to pull out of that environment. In fact, he wants you to stay in and allow him to transform you in that setting. And in the process of transforming you, guess what else he'll do? Transform those around you. Christ transforming the culture is really what we aspire to do. We don't want to be set apart from it. We don't want to try to keep them apart. We want to intermingle our faith, our belief in Jesus Christ, in the places where God has called us to go. We don't need more people being ministers up on stage on Sundays. What we need is the faithful people of God sharing the good news of Jesus in the places where he has called you to go. Sin exists in cities. But when Jesus transforms your life, you have the power to overcome that sin and make a difference wherever it is God places you. So sin exists in cities. Number two, you also need to understand that God hears the prayers for the city. Now I read to you this really long passage this morning. And what Moses is showing us here in Genesis, you know, he could have just given us a summary. God started at 50, and he worked his way down to 5. But he doesn't do that, does he? He lays out the entire conversation that happens between Abraham and God, starting at 50 and working his way all the way down to 5. And it's very repetitive. Abraham is essentially saying the same thing over and over again. All right, God, not 50. What about 40? All right, uh, let me speak one more time. Not 40. What about 30? Okay, don't strike me dead, but what about 30? And he works his way down all the way to where God says, Abraham, if I can find five righteous people, I'll spare the city. God was listening to Abraham. Sometimes... I'm afraid we think God is this unreasonable ruler who just sits up on his throne and is ultimately not really concerned with our needs or our requests. And if it doesn't fit exactly the right wording, that he's just going to dismiss it. But we see Abraham here getting vulnerable, willing to get vulnerable with God and say, look, Lord, I know you you said 50, but would you be willing to... Drop that number, and God responds. 
Now, this isn't a debate about God changing his mind or anything like that. We know that God's purpose and plan is going to happen. So God was well aware that Abraham was going to negotiate with him. This didn't take God by surprise. But he heard him. And he listened to him. God hears the prayers of his people for the cities that they live in. So let me ask you something. What prayers do you have for the city where God has placed you? Whether that be right here in New Orleans or somewhere else. Do not be afraid to ask God to do the impossible where he has placed you. He listens. He hears us. And he wants to respond So if he has put a burden on your heart to do something, follow through with it. Be obedient to what God has called you to do. He hears the prayers of his people. You also need to be ready for this. Go ahead and prepare yourself for rejection when you go out and you make Jesus known. Now, Lot goes to his own future sons-in-laws in this passage, and he tells them, look, these angels are telling us to get out. And they just think he's joking. They don't believe him. It's not like Lot is some stranger that they didn't know. It was their future father-in-law. They knew that he was in Abraham's family. They knew that he was part of the blessing. And yet... They dismissed it. The other night I went with some of our church people to the VA hospital. We not long ago started a ministry there where we go and we we knock on doors and we visit with veterans that are in the VA hospital. So we're knocking on doors and we're going in, we're letting them know we're from First Baptist New Orleans. We're just wondering if you'd like to talk for a few minutes. You know, with it being a government agency, we can't go in and necessarily pray or read Bible stories with them. So we were going room to room. Some people loved having us in there. Other people wanted nothing to do with us. So you need to go ahead and prepare yourself for the fact that when you bring the message of Jesus, some people are going to tell you to get out of their face. We need to have some thick skin, okay? We can't allow one bad experience to prevent us from sharing Jesus. It's not easy. No one likes facing rejection. No one likes getting dismissed. But if we love people enough, we'll keep sharing. We don't want to try to make Jesus so relevant to the culture that we water down what he actually did for us. Does that make sense? So what Jesus did for us in the first century is the exact same thing he did for people in 2018. There's nothing that has changed. He loves all of humanity. He died on the cross for you and me. And he offers forgiveness of sin if we'll put our faith in him. I don't know a way to make that message any more relevant than what it is. 
Now, yes, we should, we should find a way to make people interested in Jesus. Absolutely. But the message of what he did is the exact same in 30 A.D. as it is in 2018. There was recently an op-ed piece in the New York Times called Googling for God. And what the man did was he looked up on the popular search engine most people's questions about God. Over 25,000 people had this question. Who created God? Reasonable question. The number two most popular question, almost 10,000 people. Why does God allow suffering? We've heard this before. Here's the one that really upset me. Over 2,500 people typed in on their computer. Why does God hate me? 117 people asked the question, why does God not answer my prayers? 77 people responded, why does God not reveal himself to me? Do you see a trend in those questions? Other than the first one, every single one of them is framed in the negative. We are responsible for changing that narrative. The days of taking a Bible and handing it to somebody and saying, read this, are going away. It's more important than ever that if you're going to do that, you schedule an appointment to sit down with that person and teach them what the Bible says. I've mentioned before that we have the most illiterate biblical population in the history of mankind. So it should come as no surprise to us that the most popular questions about God being Googled on the internet are these types of things. But if we can change the narrative, if we can sit down with people and show them the truth about who God is, my hope is that one day we can do a rewrite on this piece. And maybe the questions will begin to be, why does God love me so much? Why did Jesus die on the cross for me? Why would God want to forgive me. You see, those are the questions that I want people asking. Not all these negative things about God. Brothers and sisters, we need to be ready to make people truly understand the God that we serve and the love that He has for them. Prepare for acceptance and rejection. And I want you to remember this. God remembers his people. If you look in the text, the text tells us that God remembered Abraham and then he sent Lot and his family out. Why is that so important? Because just three chapters earlier, in Genesis 15... God establishes a covenant with Abraham 
in which he tells them, I'm going to use you and your family to bless the nations of the earth. This covenant that God made with Abraham has no shelf life. It does not end. So in spite of the fact that Lot, a family member of Abraham, is in this wicked city, God remembered Abraham and he said, Abraham, you need to get You need to get him out. I made this covenant with you. I'm a God who keeps my word. Brothers and sisters, God made a promise to you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, he has promised you that he will never leave you and never forsake you. No matter what trial you endure, no matter what pain you might feel. He is a God who keeps his word. This entire book is built on his promises. Every one of us in this room has broken a promise before. You will not find one promise that our God has ever not kept. So as you're frustrated, as you come upon challenges living in an urban setting with difficulties, difficult co-workers. Remember that God remembers his people. So why does all this matter? Why use the story of Sodom and Gomorrah to build up the city? Because it sure does sound like God's not too happy in this passage. I want you to recognize the two most important characters in this story. You have Abraham over here. And what Abraham is doing in this story is he is fighting for the city. He is pleading that God would spare people in the city. Adopt Abraham's mentality here. Fight for the city where God has placed you. That's why every single week, we go out. We're feeding the homeless. We're going into the prisons. We're taking care of people in the nursing home. We're praying with veterans because we're going to fight for the city that we live in. Until God tells us to do differently. Which, by the way, he's never going to do. Fight like Abraham fought here. And then I want you to look at God on this side. And what we see in this passage is scary to us. It's disturbing. Boy, this God here, he seems judgmental and angry and wrathful. Why would God do this? It's a great question. But when you see the judgment and the anger and the righteousness of God in this passage, what I want you to do is look to Jesus. Because what we often say is, well, the God of the Old Testament, he was this kind of angry, judgmental, wrathful God. But then when we get to the New Testament, we have Jesus, and he's this kind, compassionate, forgiving person. Jesus knows judgment. What Sodom and Gomorrah endured 
Jesus endured on the cross for you and I exponentially worse. You see, the judgment of God that should be on us was poured out against Jesus on the cross for you, for me. So when we look at Sodom and Gomorrah, it could be really easy to say, I don't really see what God's trying to show me here. He's showing you that what Jesus endured on the cross was exponentially worse. And the judgment that you and I deserve was poured out on him. Because why? Because he loves us. See, this story is about the faithfulness of our God. It's not just about his judgment or his wrath. Yes, those are accurate depictions of God. But what we see him doing is taking all of those things that were done in Sodom and Gomorrah and doing it all to Jesus in order that we didn't have to endure it. Jesus loves you. And he took what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah and it was 100 times worse I got the call the day before 4th of July, July 3rd. One of the boys I've mentioned before that we worked with for a long, long time was shot and killed in Little Woods. His name was CJ. Andrew, myself, and Rick were involved in his funeral a few days later. And at the funeral, they passed out these little handkerchief type things don't really know what to call it second line handkerchief that's exactly what it is thank you and on it this is what it says you can see it on the screen it says you'll never be forgotten you see cj changed my life And he made me realize that the challenges that we face in the city shape us and mold us into who God desires us to be. I can promise you this. You will face heartache. You will face so much profound sadness if you engage in the city where you live. But you know, I've come to realize over the years that risk-taking and willing to be uncomfortable are key aspects of spiritual growth. Because as long as we're willing to stay comfortable and not take any risks... Our dependence is more on us. But when we step out, and you can read in that worship guide article on the front, Rick explains his call to this church and to the city and how everything was lining up perfectly for him. He had the perfect commute to work. He had a church where he loved being at, family and friends all within five minutes of his house. And yet God was ready to make him uncomfortable. 
So here's the challenge of the city, of a story like this. I want you to ask yourself, are you willing to allow God to make you uncomfortable? Are you willing to take a risk, no matter what it might cost? And if you'll do it, God will remain faithful. Will you pray with me? God, I pray when we see this story that we would realize that what Jesus did for us is so incredibly humbling. He loves us so much that he was willing to take on the judgment that we deserved. So God, if there's anybody in this room who is not sure if God truly loves them, God, may you show them this morning through Jesus that you do. And for the rest of us, God, that we would look at a story like this and we would get down on our knees and say, thank you, God, for saving me. Thank you for sending Jesus. May we never get tired of hearing about the good news of Jesus. So God, speak to us now. Show us how you want us to respond. Help us to be obedient to what you've called us to do. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.